0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between, and they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash latino. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash latino.
1: Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa here from Latino USA. And as you may or may not know... I also co-host another award-winning podcast. It's called In the Thick. It's a show about politics, race, and culture. And recently, In the Thick ran an episode about a new anthology that was just released. It's called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. We wanted to share that conversation here on the Latino USA podcast feed because part of the discussion pertains to themes that we've covered on Latino USA in the past. So here is In the Thick and just a little bit of a warning. There are some four-letter words that will drop in this episode. Enjoy it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on. Thank you y gracias. The first order of business is to
2: be able to educate people about the history, the politics, the culture
1: of white supremacy in the United States. Hey, what's up? Welcome to In The Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and we're coming towards the end of the year, Julio.
3: I know, and I'm Julio Ricardo Varela, and I can't believe it. 2021. Wow. Oh, my God.
1: It kind of went slow, but also,
3: like, (sighs) Super fast. fast. I know. Listen, joining us
1: from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Yes. The fabulous historian, writer, and professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. It is such an honor to have you on our show. Kianga, welcome.
2: Thank you so much. It's even more of an honor to be here.
1: Ah, nice. Right. And joining us from, yes. My hometown city, Chicago, Illinois. Yes, Adam Goodman, professor in the Latin American and Latino Studies Program and Department of History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. What's up, what's up, Adam? Welcome to In the Thick. This is your first time on In the Thick, but you've been on Latino USA,
4: so welcome. Thank you, Maria. And thanks, Julio, for having me as well. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: And remember, everybody, we're still recording from home. So if you hear Christmas jingles or reindeer in the background or lawnmowers.
3: An entire year of Recording From Home.
1: I have a feeling it's going to stop
3: like Uh, in 2022. Okay, Yeah, we'll see.
1: So we're going to talk about your favorite topic, white supremacy and its (laughs) deep roots in this country. I know because the thing is, is that we do not shy away from it. We are here for it. And accountability. And we're discussing this today because both you, Kianga, and Adam, you both have chapters in a new anthology book. It's called A Field Guide to White Supremacy. And it brings together the works of 19 writers and researchers who get into the history and manifestations of white supremacy. But before Mm. we dive in, there's something that we like to do here on In the Thick because we do what we want. And we call this a temperature check. It's basically like, how are you feeling? Mm. Not as an academic, as a Princeton professor, or as a U of I Chicago professor. No, no, no. Like, how are you doing? Mm. And we understand that, you know, we're very close to the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attempted coup d'etat. Wow. Um, and the attack in the U.S. Capitol. Definitely mm-hmm. white supremacy. Big example. So how are you both kind of feeling as you're reflecting on the end of the year? And, yeah, and how are you doing? So, Adam, let's start with you.
4: What a year it's been. You know, it's like the year that has felt like a decade. And as you mentioned, at the same time, it's, uh, you know, really flown by. I've had a challenging semester of sorts where I see my students feeling overwhelmed, Mm. uh, really struggling to balance classes and Mm -hmm. part or full-time jobs while also dealing with the ongoing pandemic and all the stressors that that brings, Mm -hmm. let alone the broader political situation. And, you know, I kind of had... Skeptical optimism going into the Biden administration's new immigration policies and whatnot. And thinking, if anything, I've been pretty disappointed, if not entirely yeah. surprised. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you know we're gonna be talking about that coming up, Adam. You know, a lot of the time as professors, we do have to be kind of in our heads. I'm also a professor. Right. Mm-hmm. Kianga, when you're thinking about mm-hmm. the place of your heart and your emotional state, how do you manage that at the end of the year? And at the same time being kind of, you know, in this position of a lot of influence for young people at such a prestigious place like Princeton.
3: Mm.
2: I mean, I see in my students a lot of stress and anxiety as well. And so, you know, for me, it's trying to think about what kinds of things that we need to do to be organized around to respond to the crises that I feel like are closing in, even after the kind of relief that came with the end of the Trump administration. And so, you know, it's mixed. It's both stress and anxiety, but it's also, you know, hope that those who filled the streets in the summer and fall of 2020 are still motivated to continue to challenge the status quo that's becoming even more dangerous on a daily basis. Because
3: it's
1: the long haul, Julio. It's the long haul.
3: Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's get into the history of white supremacy and racism and how it essentially exists in all major systems in our country. We see it everywhere today from policing and the criminal justice system to housing discrimination to immigration. You know what's interesting? I'm sure Adam and Kianga. And Maria, you all feel like, you know, after George Floyd was murdered, right, and we saw the protests and the word white supremacy kind of started getting used more in the mainstream, more than I ever thought, right? We are now seeing a backlash to that, right? And I think, you know, if 2020 was sort of the awakening, 2021 feels like the backlash, right? And, you know, Mm -hmm. Kianga, in your chapter of this anthology, which is called A Culture of Racism... You point out the genocide of indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. Manifest Destiny. Mm-hmm. No one talks about Manifest Destiny. You know, mm-hmm. The Latin Americanism mm-hmm. me is like, there it is, white supremacy. It's like white supremacist destiny. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese Exclusion Act, which mm-hmm. is, what a nice white supremacist title. Chinese Exclusion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the codified subordinated status of black people. Mm-hmm. And you write in your chapter, and I'm quoting that these are grim reminders of the millions of bodies upon which the audacious smugness of American hubris is built. And you also discuss how capitalism and this idea of American exceptionalism is intertwined in all this. So, Kianga, how do we begin to unpack the centuries of oppression, you know, against people of color and especially black people Mm. having experienced in this country all this white supremacy and seeing it now? So how do we push through it? Well, that's a
2: tough question. Let me just first start by saying that I think that it's important that we understand this history, that the U.S. is a country that was founded through the genocide of the indigenous population that was here, that became rich through the forced slave labor of Africans, and then that multiplied those riches a hundredfold through the exploitation of successive waves of immigrants. And so it means that racism is so deeply bound within the marrow of the American Republic that there is not a single time in its entire history where that has Mm. not been the Mm -hmm. case. And so I think that is a starting point. And then we can talk about why. And so I think one of the things that is important, at least in my work, is to always understand that even when we're talking about the 19th century and really the ascendance of a white supremacist doctrine that is built up over the course of the 19th century as justification, both for slavery, but also for the imperial expansion of the U.S. from east to west in this crusade of manifest destiny to essentially conquer the continent, that white supremacy and racism is not just for the sake of hating non-white people mm -hmm. who got in its pathway, right? But that white supremacy is always tethered to a larger political and economic objective of really the supremacy of a small number Mm -hmm. of white people, Mm. the elite, the 1%. But through the ability to wed a much larger coalition of ordinary white people to its objectives on the backs of black and brown people, that they could be easily bought off with some of the spoils of capitalism and in doing so be told that they were somehow superior Not just, you know, through telling, but through access to the ballot, through access to politics, through access to jobs that were out of the fields. So better jobs and some measure of autonomy within their lives. But I do think it's important that for the elite whites, that they did not see, you know, these other white people as any more supreme than they saw black people. Yeah. But that this was the cost of politics to ensure their own stability by removing ordinary white people from a potential coalition of other subjected, oppressed people. And so to that end, white supremacy is not just about race in and of itself. It is also about class and political domination as well. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, wake up, wake up, right? What an excellent point. And Adam, in your chapter, which is called The Expulsion of Immigrants, you get into how anti-immigrant tactics were exacerbated during the Trump administration. So talk to us about how white supremacy has played out in this country's immigration system.
4: Without a doubt, I would echo everything that Kanga just said. And it's really important to ground kind of the history of racist immigration laws in the economic interests and the political interests of those in power who have disproportionately, of course, been white men who have long led the bureaucracies and the institutions of uh, this country. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways we might think of it is, you know, first and foremost, immigration policy and the deportation machine, as I referred to it, you know, did not emerge during the Trump years. Right. Nor during the Obama administration. Nope. Or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, for that matter. You know, there's a long century and a half history of the federal deportation machine, which has been a bipartisan effort to limit the rights and to exploit the labor Of immigrants and people from all Mm -hmm. over the world who have come here successively to fill the labor demands of the United States, and in fact, the United States we know has actively recruited people to come to this country to fill that demand. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you know, I would just add as well that I think we can see racism playing out on multiple levels within the immigration system throughout history. Mm. So certainly, there are individual agents, border patrol agents, ICE agents, uh, and there's a long history of abuses, physical abuse and beatings, rape and sexual assault murders and shootings, in fact, of migrants. And individual level racism plays an unfortunate big role in so much of what we hear about in the news and rightfully so. But it's not just kind of bad apples. We shouldn't think of it simply Mm -hmm. in that way. We should also understand that there's a long history of uh, implementation of immigration laws in disproportionate ways against particular groups of people. So nine out of every 10 deportees throughout U.S. history has been Mexican. That disproportionate targeting of Mexicans has gone a long way to creating the false idea that Latinos, broadly speaking, are prototypical illegal immigrants. Part of it has been through the bureaucracy and implementation of those laws that's created those false ideas, not just based on kind of racist ideas at the beginning, as Kianga was saying, but the very fact that the bureaucratic practices and the institutions have, in fact, led to the racism that we see. And finally, The only other thing I'd mention is that there's racism in some cases built into the laws themselves, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act or the Muslim ban. Mm. Absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. And also, you know, there's indoctrination within the Border Patrol and ICE. I mean, we are increasingly going to use this term, indoctrination. Yes. Many of the agents on the ground along the U.S.-Mexico border are Latino and Latina themselves.
4: More than half now, I think.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. Tremendous amount of self-hatred, I think, something like that. All right. So, yeah, it's deep stuff. And I think what Kianga and what Adam are helping us to understand is how built-in it is and therefore how much work we all have to do on a daily To deconstruct, right? And reframe. Now let's move on to this question because after the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020, there was the, I don't know, the most beautiful side of the United States of America. Like seriously, (laughs) like the most beautiful transformative. And it's like, yo, right. They're all around us, people in solidarity all around us. And it was a way that there was this kind of Uprising and saying, We see the racism, we want to challenge it, right? And we did, since then, of course, witness the conviction of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd. And then, of course, Juneteenth, yes, okay, it has become a federal holiday. There have been several police oversight and reform laws that have passed throughout the country. Okay, yes. Bigger reforms like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was already contentious among activists, this has been stalled because of Republican opposition. So it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. We haven't seen super transformative change in the sense that we really, really need to combat this structural white supremacy. Mm -hmm. So Ellie Mistal, who is a justice correspondent at The Nation, laid it out in a previous In The Thick episode. And let's take a listen to what he had to say.
4: We going to get the prize in the mail? The white people care today prize? Is that coming now?
3: Oh, geez. Yeah.
4: You know, Michael's one of those guys who was constantly making the point that like, yeah, all these white people are out here, oh, we're gonna have protests, oh, we get you now. Like, yeah, they ain't changed a damn thing.
3: No, it's there true. There is
4: not one law, there is not one policy that has changed from George Floyd from Trayvon Martin, there's not one law or policy that has changed from Michael Brown or Philando Castile or Eric Gardner, and I can go on and on and on. They never actually change the rules. They just occasionally feel bad about it for a week.
3: Mm.
1: So, Kianga, in a New Yorker column this past summer, you wrote, quote, unrealized demands for change can turn into cynicism, despair and detachment, leaving the forces of reaction intact and on the offensive. So in your view, what has changed since the uprising of 2020?
2: I think we're seeing that now. Right. I mean, one of the things coming out of the election this past November There were two dynamics. One was a kind of overperformance from Republicans, indicating enthusiasm from rank-and-file Republicans to vote for their candidates, and then underperformance from Democrats, particularly in urban areas in the New Jersey gubernatorial race. And this is part of the fallout of consistent promises that are almost always never realized, And to me, and one of the points that I try to make in the first book I wrote, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, was that in many ways we can understand the eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement or what became the Black Lives Matter movement as profound disappointment with the self-imposed impotency of the Obama administration in the face of the murder of Trayvon Martin and then the kind of successive publicized murders of Black people thereafter. And, you know, when we look at the events of the summer of 2020, which in many ways were watershed protests that brought together both the inept and inadequate response of the federal government to the corona. Virus pandemic in its disproportionate impacts in black and brown communities, and then a, you know, intense protests, uprising, rebellion against police brutality. And it is true that a year later, there is very little substantive to show for that. I mean, there are reforms here, there are reforms there, but the kind of wholesale transformation of policing that was embodied Mm -hmm. in the slogan, defund the police, has not been fulfilled. Now, the problem is to just place that on white people. I mean, that might be a part of it. But I think there's a bigger problem, which has to do with the way that political organizers, I think on the ground activists, were convinced to some extent that they should join the Biden Mm -hmm. coalition, Mm -hmm. um, that they should attach their hopes and dreams of transforming policing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to the Democratic Party. And what has really happened is that this created a fight inside of the Democratic Party. Not a fair fight. I mean, when we talk about the left wing of the Democratic Party, we are exaggerating. We're talking about six or seven people, you know, who had made a lot of noise and had been raucous. But it created conflict within the party. But it also meant for some of them that to demonstrate their bona fides among the real estate developers and corporate people that they draw funding from inside the Democratic Party that they had to go hard against defund the police. So you look at the mayoral race in Buffalo, New York, where India Walton, a black working class woman who's a democratic socialist, goes against Byron Brown, who's a 15 year incumbent, who is the co-chair of the Democratic Party of the state of New York, who takes money from the Republican Party to send negative mailers out about India Walton, to denounce and smear her. And central to his campaign is not just being against defund the police, but then coming out in praise of the police, highlighting the police in his television ads that he is the man of the police. And so this is a mm. just another example of the political betrayal of the Democratic Party, who prides itself on its Black working class, its brown working class constituencies as the base of its party, betraying them once again, every single time.
1: And Adam, in terms of immigrants, many of whom are Black, right? It Mm -hmm. is, let us just Mm -hmm. throw you under the bus. I think, Kianga, you're so right. Like, I look at so many people activists, Latinos and Latinas, who said we're going to go in with the Biden administration. I'm a journalist. I'm always like, "Mm, are you sure about that, (laughs) Adam? So for you, you know, just before we move on, what is your sense of what needs to be done in terms of keeping momentum in the movement? Because also within the immigrant rights movement, you know, this beautiful is the coalition building that we need in order for this to completely survive, and at the same time, you're seeing immigrants and refugees are just fucking exhausted if they can make it into the United States. Oof. Uh,
4: how much time do we have today? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, not a lot, because we still got another question. <laughs> we actually have another three questions. So,
4: no, <laughs> no, quick thoughts. Man, I think people went in with high hopes and optimism. And I think, you know, we need to maintain that on some level. But we also need to understand the long history of punitive policies that Democrats and Republicans have. You know, doubled down on time and time again, Joe Biden included. I think the latest numbers I saw, I think there were 1.2 million or 1.3 million expulsions at the end of this fiscal year, in right. part because yeah. of the Title 42 you know, expedited removals that the Trump administration implemented under the guise of the pandemic, saying that you know, migrants and refugees at the border represented a threat to public health. That's being challenged in the court. I'm part of a group of historians that have put together an amicus brief in support of that case and challenging Title 42's legality. But I think what we see is that politicians, whether it's Barack Obama or perhaps Joe Biden now, they haven't necessarily taken the lead on immigration as activists and members of the community would like. They've responded to bottom-up pressure from sustained organizing and broad-based solidarity. I and mean, that's why we have DACA today. It was only mm-hmm. because young people participated mm-hmm. in acts of civil disobedience, sitting in and Senator John McCain's office um, sitting in and blocking off public roads to kind of force Obama's hand, and that's going to need to be an essential part of any kind of movement going forward. I think that in many ways we've seen the Biden administration maintain the status quo, yeah, despite the fact that Alejandro Mayorkas, you know, is the head of DHS and immigrant. I mean, people an immigrant, hmm. Cuban, Cuban refugee, refugee family, right, mm-hmm. right, correct. And I think there's interesting kind of lessons learned here, perhaps, where Mayorkas has kind of talked the talk. He hasn't always walked the walk. And there's a parallel here to the late 1970s and Jimmy Carter's administration when he appointed Leonel Castillo, yes. head of the Immigration Naturalization Service, a Mexican-American right. from Houston, kind of went in with similar mentality of providing more services to the immigrant community.
1: Yeah. In fact, in terms of modern times, it was Jimmy Carter who was taking Haitian and Cuban people... On mass and putting them into these detention camps. So, yeah. And at the same time, he was, you know, preaching peace and love. So mm-hmm. this issue of immigration. Yep. Yeah. Oh,
3: I love this history
4: lesson. Yeah. So there's similar moves made where they're encouraging people to refer to immigrants, not as illegal, but as undocumented workers similar to what's happening today. But, you know, the deportation <laughs> machine is churning along, deporting hundreds of thousands and even mm-hmm. more than a million people during now the Mayorkas and Biden years. Exactly. So unless we move away from enforcement and more toward an immigration system that provides services to the immigrant yeah. community, we'll be in the same place.
1: Oh, gee, it used to be called
3: that, huh?
1: It used to be called Immigration Naturalization Service. Yeah.
3: Hmm. And I think that's the big thing in all this, Adam, and I'm glad you brought up the history and I'm glad you mentioned, you know, Title 42 and some of these Trump policies, even like remain in Mexico that are still lingering. Right. A year later after we saw a presidential candidate. And let's remember this. I mean, we do have the tape. Let's go to the videotape. You had a presidential candidate who was saying, you know, a humane immigration system, Mm -hmm. we're going to get rid of these awful Trump policies. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of voters that were believing in that. A lot of immigrant rights activists Mm -hmm. were like, we're going to take a chance. I will argue that the biggest drop that Biden has seen in his approval has been Latino voters. And I'm not surprised given, you know, this feeling of like, here we go again.
1: Excuse me. Did you say that Latino voters, that being the second largest Largest, voting block (laughs) in the United States of America? Okay. 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 Gotcha.
3: If you look at the polls and five thirty eight did something a couple of months ago, Biden saw the biggest decline in approval with Latinos. Mm. So I think the question is, you know, we're seeing this over and over again. I mean, you were on Latino USA talking about, you know, no matter who's in office, the deportation machine continues to be humming and moving along. Mm-hmm. So, Adam, just to continue this conversation, because we know the history But, you know, when we see people who profit from this machine, from employers looking for exploitable labor to consumers only wanting to pay cheap prices for goods, how do we begin to look at not contributing to this deportation machine? You know, how does it begin to change in all this? Because we're hearing a lot of talk and we're not seeing the action. So what would you think would have to be happening next here?
4: And this speaks to such an important point. I'm glad you brought it up. And I actually think there's a lot of overlap here with what we see in Black Lives Matter organizing and activism, and you know, my biggest fear when Biden took office was that everyone would think that, "Look at that, our problems mm-hmm. are solved. Trump's out of office. That's that." Right. And really, the battle is just beginning in a sense. To assume that to kick Trump out of office was, you know, the end goal and that was going to resolve our problems is a real mistake. And I think what we need to continue to do is to apply pressure from below and to really. I think push for broader reforms. There are ways to minimize the role that ICE and Border Patrol play in our society to minimize the power they have over the lives of non-citizens and citizens. You know, I had an opportunity to speak with a group of U.S. Congress people about my book. And as soon as I mentioned Abolish ICE, Mm -hmm. kind of everyone turned off and quickly changed the discussion. (laughs) They didn't want to hear any of that. Right. But I actually think there are ways to achieve that end goal, perhaps through other means. And part of it's going to be through legislative reform. I mean, I think that is essential here. The key is to minimize the number of people over whom immigration authorities have power and have discretionary authority, right? Mm. Bro. There's two things here that I think are key. One is to provide a way for people in the country without status or without authorization to regularize their status and to become permanent residents and eventually citizens. And another key piece of any kind of legislative reform would be to provide a way for people in the future to come to the country with status and with authorization. Unless both those things happen, we're not going to see a big change because at that point, there are fewer people over whom ICE exercises power And then we can start to make a case as to why we should shift billions and billions of dollars away from enforcement and towards services. Mm.
1: So just so you know, American citizens, you too can be, you know, ICE and Border Patrol are not. That's what I was like limiting. It's like, yeah, we got to because, you know, they're just thinking Mm -hmm. about expanding. And American citizens need to understand they're coming for you, too. Yes. It's all around us. So, look, as you know, I've been reporting on the issue of immigration for decades and in November, I had the chance to go down and witness the movement north of people. Mm. People call them caravans. That has become a buzzword. And so I experienced something very differently if I was able to change the narrative, mm. and which is what we're doing for this reporting for Latino USA in this continuing series called Moving Borders. So what was beautiful, Kianga, was that mm-hmm. like Southern Mexico, because of the Mexican immigration policies that are, you know, supportive of Trump and kind of stayed that way, so people are stuck in Southern Mexico. Southern Mexico has become increasingly black. He says mm-hmm. Haitian mm-hmm. migrants and refugees, yeah. African migrants and refugees. And so to witness this happening in Mexico and kind of like forcing, like, okay, well, let's deal with the racism right here, but the response to that was this caravan movie, mm. North. I call it a caravan of love mm-hmm. and solidarity because there it was not just Central Americans. It was Central Americans. It was Africans. It was Haitians. It was mm-hmm. Venezuelans. It was Cubans. And it was like love amongst us all, love and like, mm. we got this. Like, seriously, I mean, I'm so glad that I had a chance because I can now reframe this. Y'all are talking about a caravan of migrants. Oh, we're so scared. It's like- they are going to bring so much love and hope and potential Mm, mm -hmm. you don't even see. So specifically, Kanga, can you talk about the importance of multiracial coalitions, the understanding that mass incarceration is tied to the mass detention, deportation, industrial complex? These things are tied. Your thoughts on how we must, how we do the coalition building? What is it? The language? Is it the action? Mm. What do we need to do?
2: It's crucial and it's really the only way forward. And so when we talk about what needs to change? I mean, we can talk about the need for different policies, and that's important. The question is, what force is generated to make that happen? Because it's clear, left to their own devices, neither party is seriously interested as party apparatus. Neither of them are seriously interested in pursuing the changes that ordinary people on the ground want. And so I think that, you know, solidarity is about the recognition that even if you are not immediately impacted by something, that you still have the capacity to see that it still affects all of us and that There is some level of human connection and compassion that compels people to act. If you look at, you know, the U.S. spends $80 billion a year to maintain its criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact number, the tens of billions of dollars a year that it spends to police its
3: border. It's the largest law enforcement budget. Right in the United States, like in of terms of immigration enforcement, if you take it has all more th-
1: money than all of the other federal law enforcement FBI. agencies combined. Combined,
3: and think so about that. if
1: we think about the
2: hundreds of billions of dollars that is spent on security, surveillance, incarceration, and we compare mm-hmm. that to the inept, inadequate response to the pandemic and what that exposed about our society what it exposed about how ordinary people, particularly Black and Latinos, Latinas in this country live, then that in and of itself becomes the basis of coming together to fight for money away from policing, from law enforcement, from surveillance, from immigration, to actually invest in our lives and communities. I mean, that really is what Defund the Police is all about. That really is part of what Abolish ICE is about. And so I think that there are tangible and specific ways in which we can talk about how the oppression of one becomes a problem, a consequence, an injury to everyone else. And that that is the basis upon which we should be trying to organize is to see how we are impacted by this. And I started by talking about white supremacy as a class project. And I think Trump exemplified and demonstrated that in such clear ways. Yeah. On the one hand, tax cuts for the richest people and evisceration of domestic spending and the social safety net for the rest of us. And meanwhile, blaming immigrants in the most disgusting racist and vicious terms Mm -hmm. for the standards and quality of life uh, for ordinary people. And going so far, I don't know if people realize this when Trump was running in 2016, he made overtures and appeals to black voters. You know,
4: that's right. a
2: new deal for black Mm -hmm. people where he directly blamed immigrants for poverty and unemployment.
3: Divide and conquer. There it is. Absolutely.
2: We have to counter that. Exactly. We have to argue about that. Exactly. Instead of avoiding it, instead of talking about about something else. And so that's part of what it will mean to build solidarity right now.
3: And I'm, and, and, um, wow. And so let's move on to our final segment, which we call La Ultima y Nos Vamos, or the last one before you go or last call. So the last shot of tequila. Poor
4: guy
1: <laughs> <laughs> The last shot. My of nightly shot of tequila. Let's
3: change it. We need to rebrand it next year <laughs> no, and maybe get a sponsor. All right. There you go.
1: <laughs> Damn. Always thinking like an entrepreneur. All right. So for the last shot, this new book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy, which I am traveling with as I left the United States and am now in the Dominican Republic, I'm traveling with it. I'm reading it. I'm understanding it. I'm thinking about it all the time. It is, in fact, written for all of us, but right. in particular, journalists, activists, policymakers, anyone really who wants to understand the history of white supremacy and how it looks like today today. In our country. So, how do we translate the teachings from this book into actual action and solutions that take on white supremacy in our day to day lives and lead us, right? Now, we do it by creating in the thick and having these conversations twice a week and pushing it like we're in part. But more, what can people do? So, let's start with you, Adam, and we'll end with Kianga.
4: I think that, you know, this book can really serve as a wonderful resource for anyone trying to understand how white supremacy has operated both past and present. And I think there's a really key lesson here, to put it succinctly, is that nothing's inevitable. There's specific policies and policy decisions that have brought us to this point that have helped develop kind of the white supremacist order that we have had and seen play out in increasingly disturbing ways in recent years. And there are different policies that could point us in a different direction. So I don't want you know people to walk away feeling completely demoralized and immobilized by these seemingly inexorable policies. We need to understand how white supremacy has operated in a concrete way. That's the starting point to understand how to dismantle it.
1: All right, Kianga, take us out. La última.
2: Yeah, I think that the first step and really organizing anything effective is to really understand what it is that you are fighting against. And I think that when it comes to white supremacy and racism, that there has been an ongoing disinformation campaign for decades. And I mean, people think it's controversial to talk about racism in the first place. And so we can see the backlash to the protest of 2020 has really, at the core of it, has been a denial that there is any kind of systemic racism Mm -hmm. Uh, That there is anything such as white supremacy in the United States. And so I think the first order of business is to understand what it is, is to be able to have working definitions, is to be able to educate people about the history, the politics, the culture of white supremacy in the United States. You know, I think related to that is what Maria has raised just in terms of the show that these are things that you have to talk about, that you have to be in community and conversation and dialogue yeah. about, and not just in educating other people, but how we who see ourselves as vested in political organizing and movement building against these structures, what do we understand about them? What do we understand about the history of white supremacist movements, but also what people have done in the past? What historical lessons are there to learn from previous campaigns? What historical lessons are there to learn from previous instances in which solidarity, across race and ethnicity was able to be Mm -hmm. built and developed, Mm -hmm. and how can we generalize those lessons to the contemporary situation? And so in that sense, there is much more to learn, to be learned Mm. about this issue. In this book, it should be considered one tool in the toolbox that is necessary to arm ourselves politically, intellectually, and historically during this very frightening time in this country's
1: history. Mm. And to do it with heart. And if you make a mistake, if you do it with heart, you know, it's okay. Like we are in community, in discussion. And I just really want to thank you, Kianga Yamada Taylor, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University and Adam Goodman, professor in the Latin American and Latino studies program and department of history at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you so much. Really, Julio and I were listening to every single word that the both of you said. And yeah. You've also given us a bit of a roadmap for 2022. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of In the Thick.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. Uno, 2 Remember, dear listener, for the last time,
3: <laughs> please go to Apple Podcasts. We're getting them in the thousands on the rate and reviews. So the people All are right. doing it. We're getting new oh. reviews. It really helps. So. Thank you you. you see? Keep asking. Keep asking. There
1: you go. Spoken from the real digital dude who tells <laughs> us, hey. So, yeah, we really love it when you rate and review us. And it really, really, really does help. And remember that you can listen to In the Thick on Pandora, Spotify, wherever you choose to get your podcasts on. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter, and Instagram at In the Thick Show. And remember to like us on Facebook and tell everyone that you're seeing these days. In the Thick is produced by the fabulous team. Noor Saudi, Harsha Nahata, Lisa Salinas, and our fellow Sarah Hershander with editorial support from Mike Sargent our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau Julia Caruso and Gabriela Baez our digital editor is Luis Luna thanks to Raul Perez for recording me the music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Captain ZZK Records we'll see you on our next episode thank you for listening dear listener we love you bye
3: peace y'all
0: opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between, and they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com/latino. That's o d o o.com/latino.